Today we bring to a close our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and we'll first hear the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus' baptism and temptation. As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, meet us where we are in the hearing of your word, but do not leave us where you find us. Transform us by your power to be more fully the disciples you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have spent these last four weeks exploring what it is we mean when we say these words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As easily as this prayer might roll off our tongues, there is nothing easy about it. In the Episcopal liturgy, the priest often introduces this prayer by saying, Now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say. Frederick Beekner writes, The word bold is worth thinking about. We do well not to pray the prayer lightly. It takes guts to pray it at all. We can pray it in the unthinking and perfunctory way we usually do, only by disregarding what we are saying. The Lord's Prayer indeed requires boldness and courage to pray sincerely, 
And the line we encounter today, that last line Jesus taught his disciples, arguably requires the most boldness and courage to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. To pray these words is to admit there is a force in this world tempting us away from God and God's call and claim on our lives and toward an unspeakably dark force. As we prepare to begin the season of Lent, which is 40 days patterned after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil, this is a good time to reflect on this particular line of the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The English word from our text today, the word devil, comes from a Greek word which means to throw between, to split apart. Another word for this demonic force is the slanderer, the one who lies, the one who lies to us, the one who lies about us, the one who lies intentionally to make us question ourselves and others. Division and lies. These are good ways to describe temptation. Temptation threatens to split us apart from God and from each other by lying to us about who and whose we are, by telling us we are not God's beloved and we do not belong to God or to each other. When I discovered that that word devil means to split apart, it brought to my mind the perplexing word cleave. Cleave is the only word I know of that describes two completely opposite ideas. One meaning of cleave is to cling to, to stick closely with. But another meaning is to cut apart, as in cleaving a piece of meat. So although it may be our sincere desire to cleave to God, to stick close to God, it is undeniable in fact, it is biblical that there is a force in this world that is attempting to cleave us from God and from each other, to erode our trust in God and our willingness to care for others. We'd rather not think about it, but because of this force, whether you want to call it the devil, the slanderer, or the cleaver, we should expect to be tempted in the very ways Jesus was tempted. Tempted to believe we are separate from God and each other. Tempted to forget our baptismal identity, that we too are God's beloved. Tempted to believe in a world of scarcity rather than abundance. To think as long as we have bread for ourselves, those who have none are not our concern. Tempted to believe that when we succeed in the eyes of the world, it means we are favored by God, and those who aren't successful must have offended God and don't deserve our support. Tempted to believe that the power of empire is the most powerful force of all, 
Claire Keegan is an Irish author whose book, Small Things Like These, is historical fiction about Ireland's Magdalene laundries. These were convents or asylums, which often doubled as laundry businesses, where young girls who had gone astray, many of them were pregnant out of wedlock, suffered horrific abuse at the hands of church authorities in collusion with the government until they were finally dismantled in the 1990s. In the novel set in the mid-1980s, we meet Bill Furlong, a hardworking coal merchant and family man in a small Irish town where he is raising five daughters with his loving wife. In his busiest season, right before Christmas, Bill makes a delivery of coal to the local convent, which is also the town's laundry. He's heard rumors about the place for years, rumors about the girls who work there. But for the first time, he inadvertently encounters some of these girls, and he is disturbed to see the condition they are in, especially when one of them begs him to help her escape. Bill is confused and concerned, but he puts the episode out of his mind. Delivering another batch of coal a few days later, early on a cold Sunday morning just before Christmas, Bill opens the coal shed to discover a girl without shoes or a coat locked inside. He takes her inside to the convent, and as he does, she begs him to tell the nuns to let her see her baby. But he says nothing to them, accepting the mother superior's explanation that the girl ended up in the coal shed by accident and will be well cared for. Later that evening, Bill shares these disturbing incidents with his wife, Eileen. And to his surprise, her reaction is quick and fierce. When he told her, Keegan writes, she sat up rigid and said such things had nothing to do with them, and there was nothing they could do, and didn't these girls need a fire to warm themselves like everyone? And didn't the nuns always pay for their coal what they owed and on time? Bill is surprised by her rant. What is it you know, he asks her. There's nothing. Only what I'm telling you, she answers. In any case, what do such things have to do with us? Aren't our girls well and minded? Our girls, Bill says, what does any of this have to do with ours? Not one thing, Eileen responds. What have we to answer for if we just mind what we have here and stay on the right side of people and soldier on, none of ours will ever have to endure the likes of what those girls go through. They were put in there because they hadn't a soul in the world to care for them. All their people did was leave them wild. And when they got into trouble, they turned their backs. But what if it was one of ours, Bill says. This is the very thing I'm saying, Eileen answers. Tis not one of ours. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evil takes many forms, the devil, the slanderer, the cleaver, 
but we can recognize it by the ways it tries to convince us that we do not belong to God or to each other. This is a lie, but it takes seductive forms. That if my neighborhood and schools are safe, I don't need to worry about the ones that aren't. That if my kids don't have mental health challenges, I don't need to be concerned about the ones who do. That if I try to do the right thing and treat people well, then disparities of opportunity or security or housing aren't mine to fix. These lies are insidious and persistent in every time and place, in every culture and country, that there isn't enough to go around, that our job is to worry about our own, that those people and their troubles, however we define them, have nothing to do with us, for they are not one of ours. Although the details are different, the temptations we face are the same ones Jesus faced in the wilderness. The temptation to put himself above God and everyone else, to feed himself, to protect himself, to claim power for himself, to cleave himself from God and others. Instead, Jesus chooses again and again and again to cleave to God and to all humanity. The slanderer is insidious, and it is so tempting to believe and to encourage others to believe the lies he tells. And the rewards of resisting the devil's temptations are not tangible rewards of safety and security, wealth or riches, but rather the reward of the deep satisfaction that comes with choosing right over might and doing our part to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. In Keegan's book on Christmas Eve night, Bill finds himself alone in town after attending church and picking up a Christmas present for Eileen. He decides to go for a walk, and without even really consciously realizing it, he finds himself back at the convent, opening the door to the coal shed. There he sees, cold and alone, without coat or shoes, the same girl he had discovered there days before. This time when he helps her up and puts his coat around her, he does not take her back to the convent. He leads her away, back through the town toward his own home. As he does, he knows how upset Eileen will be, how bringing this girl home will upend their safe and sheltered existence, but he also knows he cannot not help her. It will be hard, he thinks, but together they will manage. Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil because he knows evil exists and we will be tempted. Tempted to forget we belong to God and each other. But in those moments of our temptation, we have something that Jesus 
who faces his temptation alone in the wilderness did not have. We have each other. When the temptations are powerful, we can cleave to each other to remember the truth of who we are. Last week at the DART clergy conference in Orlando with clergy from across the nation, DART is the National Organization of Risk, one of the preachers reminded us that even though we call this prayer Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, it would be more accurate to call it the disciples' prayer. Jesus doesn't need this prayer, he told us. We do. To pray this prayer requires boldness and courage. And when we pray it, it is the equivalent of daily physical exercise, building our muscles of boldness and courage, so that when we encounter evil in its many guises, we will have the strength to resist, to tell the truth in the face of the devil's lies. We affirm this truth whenever we pray this disciple's prayer in worship because we pray it together. Remember Jesus' first instruction when he teaches this prayer to his disciples? He says, y'all pray. Our Father, give us our daily bread. Forgive us, lead us, deliver us from temptation. Our boldness to speak these words comes from the knowledge that we pray them together. So together, may we remember and remind each other who we are and whose we are. We belong to God and to each other. And we live as we pray. So with our words and our very lives, let us pray. Amen.